Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. One of the more well-known Peanuts comic strips published by Charles Schultz features an interaction between brother and sister Linus and Lucy. Linus is watching television alone in the living room when all of a sudden Lucy barges in and demands, switch channels. I want to watch my program. To which Linus replies, are you kidding? What makes you think you can just walk right in here and take over? Lucy then says, these five fingers, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. So after contemplating his mortality for about one second, Linus surrenders and says, what channel do you want to watch? And then walks out of the room and he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> I think it goes without saying that Lucy understood the power of unity. And, well, the Apostle Paul does too. And he has some insights he'd like to share with our church about unity in the text we're going to be looking at today. And so we're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 1. If you forgot your Bible, just uh, raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you so you can follow along. There's an outline in the worship folder you received as well. I want to encourage you to follow along with that and take notes. This message may be helpful to you uh, in the future. And as you turn there, let me just bring some of you up to speed, maybe who haven't been here recently. Uh, the book of Philippians, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome, somewhere around 61 to 62 A.D. He was in house arrest for preaching the gospel, awaiting trial before Caesar. Uh, according to Acts chapter 16, he helped start the church in Philippi, about 11 to 12 years earlier on his second missionary journey. Philippians is a warm, friendly, thank you letter in general for the financial support that they had sent, the, the church in Philippi had sent to Paul while he was doing his church planting ministry. Uh, just like every other New Testament church though, uh, the church in Philippi had its struggles. And uh, among some of them that we're going to see here in this letter is uh, they struggled with the lack of joy. Uh, false teachers were trying to invade the church, pride, unresolved conflict, and disunity. Our theme verse for this series is Philippians 4.4. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to highlight it or underline it in your Bible. Uh, but let's read it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, one of the problems that can quickly suck the joy out of a church is division 
and disunity. Throughout my pastoral ministry, I have learned that most church members do not like disunity, but the ones who do are usually the ones causing it. That brings us to our big idea for today. And if I could put the sermon in one sentence, I would say it like this. Unity requires intentionality, or disunity will be an eventuality. Unity requires intentionality, or disunity will be an eventuality. Sprinkled throughout the four chapters of this letter, the apostle tells us the secret to having outrageous joy is having the mind of Christ. Simply put, to have the mind of Christ means to see life and to think about life and to feel about life the way Jesus does. Paul emphasizes this throughout his letter by using the Greek word phroneo. It means to understand to think or to direct the mind, phroneo. Although he uses this word only about seven to ten times, depending on which Greek uh, commentary you look at, he gives significant weight to it. Uh, and what I mean here by, by unity requiring intentionality is that unity never happens accidentally or passively. And it doesn't happen accidentally or passively in a church because the adversary is always working to cause disunity. He does this because he knows that a divided church is like a declawed cat. It's not a threat to him anymore. Therefore, churches that are united, they think about unity often so they do nothing to untie unity. Now, before we dive into the scripture text for today, allow me to define and distinguish some terms that are often confused with unity. Uh, this has come up before in different churches that I've served when, say, for example, I've had to tell somebody they can't do what they want to do, and they throw the, you want uniformity. You want us all to be alike. No, 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 no. And so, so let me define some terms. First of all, unity, it's not the same as a union. A union is to, to affiliate with others, but without a common bond that makes them one in heart. This is why you can tie the tails of a cat and a dog together with a rope and have a union, but you certainly won't have unity. Unity is also not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is the state or quality of everyone looking alike. Uh, for example, you could have a team of football players all wearing the same uniform, the same colors, but it doesn't mean they are a cohesive unit striving towards the same goal. Unity is also not the same as unanimity. That's a hard word to say. Unanimity is complete agreement across the board, but it's not unity. For example, I've, I've been in elder meetings or staff meetings over the years, different churches where everyone was unanimous in the meeting, only to later find out that some in the room told the congregation later they were either afraid to speak up or just went along with the majority. 
that caused division, <laughs> but it was the appearance of unanimity, but it wasn't unity. And finally, unity, according to the New Testament, if I was to condense what the scriptures say about unity, a brief definition I would say would be this, it's a oneness of heart and mind to have the same purpose or to agree on the majors. A oneness of heart and mind to have the same purpose or to agree on the majors. For example, you have unity in a family uh, with distinctiveness across the relatives. Parents, children, and siblings will look like each other, but also different than each other. They, Christ-centered families in particular, are able to be unified under one roof by keeping their preferences in check and everybody in the family fulfilling their proper roles. The same is true in a local church. An elder board, staff team, and even church members can be one at heart, one in mind, focusing on the majors, keeping the minors in check or to themselves for the sake of unity. That's what Paul's going to be talking about today in the verses we're going to be looking at. If you would look at chapter 1, verse 27, and follow along with me as I read, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's the first of three truths about unity that Paul wants to tell us today. The first on your outline, number one, is this. Church unity is protected with a code of conduct. Church unity is protected with a code of conduct. Now, there's a bit of a backstory I need to fill you in on here so we can fully understand what Paul is saying in verse 27. So bear with me for a moment. I'll give you a little history lesson. Philippi was a Roman colony on the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire. It was established uh, in the region of Macedonia after the Battle of Philippi, which took place in 42 BC. The emperor at the time, after uh, Rome won that battle, in order to secure that colony as a Roman city and to keep that, that property, that territory, the emperor ordered soldiers and some citizens and all their families to take up residence out there on the far eastern edge of the empire. In order to appease these first-generation citizens who would be giving up all the comforts of Rome to establish this new city, the emperor granted them the same privileges they would have had living on Italian soil. Among these privileges would be the right to self-government, freedom from taxation, and a legal status equivalent to Rome. As a result, the Philippians were very proud of their Roman citizenship because they possessed something that the other colonies did not. They were special. Uh, Roman customs and culture permeated every aspect of the Philippians' lives, including how they thought, how they talked, how they dressed, how they ate, how they entertained themselves, how they raised their children. Uh, they were proud. It was a big deal to be Roman. 
Paul leverages this civic pride that they had in verse 27 when he writes, Only let your manner of life be. Now, most English translations render this conduct yourselves in a manner uh, because they want to render the idea of being conveyed, the idea being conveyed rather than the clunky word for word translation. So, like the ESV, my, my preferred translation leaves out conduct. It just says, only let your manner of life be. Uh, but the ESV does add a footnote of an alternative translation. If you have the ESV, it's at the bottom of the page, or if you tap on it on your electronic version, only behave as citizens. Now, why would Paul write that? The apostle's using a, a, a unique Greek word here that means to be citizens or to discharge your obligations as citizens. Now, hang, hang with me. I'm going somewhere with this. It's going to get good, okay? Just hang in there. It's coming. So what's his point? Paul is saying in verse 27, just as you Philippians proudly conduct yourselves as good Roman citizens as to not bring shame on the Roman Empire, you also should conduct yourselves as good citizens of heaven by not bringing shame on the gospel of Christ. If, if Paul was writing to our church today, a way that he might uh, address this with us is he'd say, just as you represent your country by voting and singing the national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance at graduation ceremonies and you salute the flag and, and uh, you celebrate Independence Day with fireworks, you also, Americans, should represent the Lord as citizens of heaven. So just as Philippi was a colony of Rome, the apostle was trying to help his audience understand that the church in Philippi was a colony of heaven. Paul then goes on to explain that heavenly citizens should stand firm. That's a military term describing a soldier who stands his ground. They should strive side by side. That's an athletic term describing athletes on the same team competing together towards a goal. And then he says at the beginning of verse 28 that they should not be frightened. More on that later. So just as our national leaders would tell us to stand our ground and to defend the homeland if the United States was attacked and not giving in to, to any opposition, Paul is trying to tell the Philippians to protect the faith of the gospel by not giving in to opposition. Again, leveraging civic language and citizenship to try and help the Philippians and us think biblically about citizenship in heaven. It's so, the church is to figuratively speaking, circle the wagons, present a united front to the world in the battle for souls. This is to be done in one spirit, as Paul says in verse 27, you see in your Bible, with one mind, 
literally as one's soul. It's suke, the Greek word for soul. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't always happen. Some Christ followers cause disunity, I think, without even realizing it. Others do it on purpose. But here are five of the most common behaviors I have seen corrode unity in churches over the years. So here's A, B, C, D, and E on your outline. Things that we can do to corrode unity that we need to be aware of. We need to be careful to avoid. The first is, letter A, elevating preferences above biblical convictions. Elevating preferences above biblical convictions. In Romans chapter 14, Paul taught that mature Christ followers are able to discern the difference between a personal preference or opinion and a biblical conviction. They gain this ability by learning the scriptures and putting on the mind of Christ. Uh, This allows them then to know what's worth fighting for and what's not worth fighting for. What Jesus died for and what he didn't die for. Believers who choose not to put on the mind of Christ, who choose not to learn the scriptures, end up being like the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked. They strain out gnats while swallowing camels. So elevating preferences over biblical convictions. Uh, Letter B, uh, here's a second common thing we can do that can corrode unity. Complaining about problems instead of helping solve them. Complaining about problems instead of helping to solve them. Sorry, I think there's a typo there. After surveying the scriptures on this topic, I I think a simple definition for complaining would be voicing annoyance with circumstances that are not wrong, which you are doing nothing about. For example, telling your doctor where it hurts on your body is not complaining, but whining about your pain without making a doctor's appointment is. Uh, Privately asking your boss for more resources so you can do your job better is not complaining, but telling all your coworkers how unhappy you are with your job would be complaining. In Numbers chapter 14, Uh, There is a sober warning about complaining. Uh, The entire congregation of Israel began to complain because they believed the spies who had come back from the promised land saying the armies there were so big, we seemed like grasshoppers to them. And instead of trusting that the Lord would still fulfill and keep his promises about the promised land, the people of Israel tried to overthrow Moses to elect a new leader who would then take them back to Egypt. In response to their complaining and unbelief, the Lord then sentenced them to one year in the wilderness for each day the spies were gone, or 40 years. A 40-year setback because of their complaining and unbelief. Numbers 14 is a sobering reminder that the Lord hears our complaining and he takes it seriously. Uh, Let us see. The next thing, criticizing church leaders. Um, In 2 Samuel chapter 15, King David's son Absalom 
did great damage to the kingdom by sitting at the city gate and telling citizens how he could be a better king than his dad. After spreading this venom for a while, the scripture text tells us in 2 Samuel 15 that he, quote, stole the hearts of 200 men and then led a rebellion against his father and overthrew the throne. Eventually, though, Absalom's sin caught up to him when he rode under a tree. He got his head caught in the branches and hung himself. True story. Not because it's on the internet, but because it's in the Bible. Okay. Now, this certainly does not mean church leaders are above criticism or correction. However, what you criticize and how you go about doing it matters to the Lord. Uh, in short, concerns should be raised the way you would want them raised about you. In private and face-to-face, instead of in public, behind your back. Next, letter D. The, the fourth thing that a lot of American Christians do to corrode unity, and that is gossiping about church members. And I would even add, disguised as prayer requests. Gossiping about church members. One thing that the Proverbs agree on when it comes to gossip is that gossip divides relationships, and if it divides relationships, it certainly can divide churches. Proverbs 17, verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Gossip is, is simply idle talk about the private affairs of others. You might want to write that down. It's idle talk about the private affairs of others. Idle means it contains information we can do nothing with, Private means it's none of our business. And you can discern whether something is gossip by simply asking yourself, do I need to know this information? Or can I do anything edifying with this information? And if the answer is no and no, then I don't need to hear it. I'm sorry, I need to interrupt you. We should probably stop talking right there. Uh, does this person know that you're sharing this with me? Would they be okay with that? Those are good questions to ask. So gossiping about church members. And then letter E, the fifth common behavior that corrodes unity in a church is avoiding conflict instead of resolving it. Avoiding conflict instead of resolving it. Jesus placed such a high priority on believers resolving conflict with each other, that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, he says he would rather have us leave our gifts at the altar so we can go seek forgiveness from the person we hurt, then come back and worship him. I, mean, I can't think of any other place where, in the scriptures where the Lord has told his people to pause worship and go do this and then come back and I'll receive your worship. Now, there are several reasons for this that I'll unpack later in chapter 4 of Philippians, uh, because in chapter 4, Paul urges two of the women in the Philippian church to, in essence, bury the hatchet. They were um, at odds with each other. Now, for now, what you need to know is that unresolved conflict in a church, a family, or between two friends gives the devil 
a foothold in the door to come in and cause more conflict. So unity requires intentionality, or disunity will be an eventuality. It could be intentionally resolving conflict, refraining from gossip, or numerous other things, but Philippians 1.27 is a reminder that disunity is almost always caused by immaturity. Disunity is almost always caused by immaturity. Next, if you would look at verse 28, as Paul continues, he says, I, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here's number two on your outline, the second truth about unity that Paul wants us to hear, and that is that church unity is intended to be a source of courage. It's intended to be a source of courage. When Paul says not to be frightened by anything, he uses a rare Greek word that is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It was instead used in a story, a popular story from Greek literature that describes a horse becoming frightened in the heat of battle and throwing his rider off, causing the soldier that that horse was carrying to die, to be killed. Well, in a similar way, believers are not to be shocked or intimidated or paralyzed by opposition to the gospel. Paul says, don't be like the horse that panics when the horse hears the gunfire and the cannons go off. Instead, in a sense, just know this was coming. Jesus warned us about this. So next, Paul provides three words of encouragement in verse 28. He says, this is a clear sign of their destruction. Uh, This could be rendered in a modern vernacular as, don't worry. The Lord sees what you're going through, and he will bring the full weight of his wrath against those who are persecuting you. They will not get away with this. Next, he says, this is also a clear sign of your salvation. Oh, man, so he's going to encourage me and say, don't worry, the Lord's going to bring his wrath on those that are persecuting you for being Christians. And then next, he says, by the way, suffering for the gospel, it's proof that you are a Christian. It's proof that you're doing something right. It's even implied in the text here that professing believers who have never suffered for the gospel have more to worry about than those who do. Jesus said the world will hate his followers because they hated him and that they would have tribulation in this world. And so again, going back to the the frightened horse story, Paul's saying, "Don't, don't be frightened here, Philippians. This shouldn't shock you. Jesus said, if you live for me, this is going to happen. And then thirdly, he encourages them by reminding them, you are not alone. You are engaged, verse 30, in the same conflict you saw that I had. Other believers around the world, including him, are also standing firm for the gospel in the face 
of op opposition and suffering for it. And Paul says, you're doing great, Philippians. You're doing the same thing that, hey, those Thessalonians, they're going through it. The Ephesians, they're going through it. The Colossians, they are too. Welcome to the team. This is a good thing. Knowing that we are part of a, a movement exponentially bigger than us should strengthen our boldness in Christ. Knowing that there are believers gathered today in other parts of the world in dark rooms that had to sneak out to go to worship service, that are worried about word getting out about their faith in Christ, and some who have even lost family members for the sake of the gospel. Their boldness to continue living for the Lord and worshiping him, man, that should fire us up, considering the freedoms we enjoy here. Uniting around the truths of the gospel as a church, it should give us the same courage that fueled the famous missionary William Borden. After he passed away in 1913, at just the age of 25, he made a profound impact in his short life, though. Six words were found written on the inside cover of his Bible. No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. May we, too, live that kind of life for the Lord. Next, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, excuse me. Paul moves into the next stage of his argument here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Here's number three in your outline. Church unity is rooted in the gospel of Christ. Church unity is rooted in the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? Well, simply put, it's the fact that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, was buried and then resurrected. And that anyone who repents of their sin and by faith alone trusts in Christ alone for their salvation can receive forgiveness and peace with God and the gift of eternal life. The gospel, and it comes clearly off the page here of Paul's writings in his letters, the gospel is the greatest story ever told, the greatest message ever shared, and it meets the greatest need of every human being. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. So verse 1, in the ESV, it's so. Several other English translations say, therefore. You probably have heard the old joke, if you see a therefore, figure out what it's there for. I don't know who came up with that one, but it just stuck in my head when I was in a college Bible study. And so I decided last night to see what it was there for. So Paul, what he does is he links, using this article, what he just established at the end of verse, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, he now links it to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It's his way of saying, because of what I just said is true a few minutes ago, 
Now what I'm about to say to you is also true, and it should be the result of what I just got done telling you. So in verse 1, the apostle lists a few benefits of knowing Christ in the form of rhetorical questions that his readers would already know the answer to. It doesn't come out as clearly in the ESV, but it does in some of the other translations with question marks. So he says, have you been encouraged by your union with Christ? Have you been comforted by his love? Have you enjoyed fellowship with the Spirit? Have you sensed Christ's affection and sympathy or mercy? Of course you have. Then you have every reason to do, verse 2, complete my joy. Why? Because you've had union with Christ, been comforted by his love, enjoyed fellowship with the Spirit, experienced his affection and his sympathy. Like a parent pleading with their child or their children, excuse me, to get along, why can't you guys just get along? Paul is saying to the Philippians, can't you guys get along and be unified because you've experienced fellowship with Christ, his spirit, been comforted by him, his love, enjoyed, enjoyed his affection, his sympathy. If you have that, why can you not get along with each other? He's imploring the Philippians to literally top off his joy tank, complete my joy. And again, imagine he's in, he's in Rome under house arrest, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, chained to a Roman soldier. The soldiers take shifts being chained to him. He's writing to the Philippians that are several hundred miles away on the eastern side of the empire in a colony. He's saying, if you guys want to make sure all my needs are met while I'm in chains back here in Rome, then meet my need to lack no joy. That's how you can bless me, by being united. He goes on to say, be of the same mind. There's that key word again, phroneo. Think or direct your mind. The apostle knows the way they think will determine the way they feel, and they have to control the way they feel in order to have unity. He then says, have the same love, meaning they should love each other unconditionally the way Christ has loved them. Being in full accord literally means having the same soul, but Paul is stressing being united in spirit or having the same desire to be united and focused on the gospel, the gospel gospel. He's doing everything he can to raise the Philippians' eyes from their, their, just their petty differences they've been squabbling about. He's trying to get, get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes back up on the Lord and the gospel because there's a greater mission here you need to be doing. There's a bigger picture and a greater cause that is worth dying for. Church unity is rooted in the gospel. However, sometimes, sometimes, the peace of unity needs to be broken for the gospel. In his book, Warnings to Churches, J.C. Ryle wisely states that when the truth of God's word is threatened, 
unity needs to be broken. He then gives examples such as Martin Luther breaking rank with the Catholic Church over their drift into traditionalism, and the Apostle Paul confronting Peter in Galatians chapter 2 about Peter's hypocrisy towards the Gentiles regarding the gospel. And he goes on and on and on, gives several other examples. Ryle then uh, concludes his arguments for breaking peace of unity for the sake of the gospel when he's, and he says this in conclusion. Paul teaches us that we ought to contend for truth jealously and fear the loss of truth more than the loss of peace. Peace without truth is a false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Unity, which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth, is worth nothing. It is not unity that pleases God. Thank you, J.C. Ryle. For those great reminders. Well, how can we apply what we've learned? Here's two applications, since we always want to respond to God's word. It was written not to just inform us, but to transform us. Here's the first application that comes to mind. Be a lifelong student of the scriptures. I know I probably sound like a broken record because it seems as if this application just keeps coming up over and over again. But it simply cannot be overemphasized. It is impossible and incongruent in the scriptures to profess faith in Christ but not love his word and desire to study it and learn it. That just doesn't compute for, for the apostles and Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. Well, how do you know what he commanded if you don't study his word? That's why James said in James chapter 1, obey his word and do it, put it into action because you'll be blessed in doing so. We are to be doers of the word, not just hearers. It's why doing your devotions throughout the week is so critically important. Or, or doing your homework before you go to your V group. Because every time you sit down and you open God's word and you spend some time with him and you commune with him, he, he and his spirit and his word are working in you to transform your mind. And although you don't see it happen, like it's not dramatic over the course of one day or one week, you should be able to look back over a year and go, wow, man, I used to watch that, but now I don't because I've grown in my knowledge of the word and the spirit's been convicting me about this, so I don't want to watch that anymore. Or I used to talk like this, but I don't talk like this anymore because I've been in the Word, and I just, I remember I did that series, that study in Thessalonians, and God convicted me. And you ought to be able to look back and see things over the course of time that have changed. Knowing God's Word is also very important for unity because it helps you know what's worth living for and what's worth dying for, what's worth fighting for in the church. 
I have found the longer I walk with the Lord and the older I get, my list of things I'm willing to die for continues to get shorter. But none of those things that come from the scriptures are leaving the list. So I just have to ask, do you know God's word better this year than you did last year? And and do, do you have fewer opinions this year than you did last year? I encourage you to consider that. Number two, always put the church and the gospel first. This is hard in consumeristic America where so many churches have made it all about you, man. It's all about you. It's not about Jesus anymore. It's about you because we want to please and reach you. But when Jesus died for the church, he put the needs of the church before his own. And as imitators of Christ, we should deny ourselves by doing the same. Therefore, we serve faithfully, we give generously, we resolve conflict biblically, we love each other unconditionally, we witness boldly, and we share our opinions only occasionally. Because the church and the gospel must come first. One of the largest animals living near the Arctic Circle is the musk oxen. Second in size only to the polar bear, the musk oxen stands five feet tall at the shoulders and weighs 800 massive pounds. Despite their massive size, even musk oxen are vulnerable to predators. One of their most dangerous threats is the Arctic wolf. In a 1987 National Geographic article titled, At Home with the Arctic Wolf, wildlife researcher David Meech spent 10 years living in the Arctic. Uh, I don't think he was there all year round, but I think he went there every summer or something like that to study the wolves and take pictures of them, study their behavior, and gathered tons of data to the point where he actually saw the next generation of wolves come up. Well, during one of his summers up in the Arctic, he witnessed a seven-member pack of wolves attacking a family of 11 musk oxen. As the wolves approached their prey, the musk oxen instinctively bunched into an impenetrable semicircle with their calves in the middle and their deadly rear hooves facing out. This allowed the calves that the wolves were after to remain safe during the standoff. But, unfortunately, one single adult ox broke rank and the herd scattered into nervous little groups. A skirmish ensued and the adults eventually fled in panic, leaving the small calves at the mercy of their predators. Most of the young ones did not survive. A short while later that day, the wolves returned for more food. But this time, the adult oxen formed a semicircle facing the wolves. After a brief confrontation, the wolves realized the oxen were not going to take any more 
of their attacks, and the wolves scrambled off looking for other prey. The relationship between the arctic fox and the musk oxen I find fascinating because it's a powerful reminder that it doesn't matter how big or small, strong or weak a church is. Even healthy churches are vulnerable to divisive attacks. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders to guard the flock. And he said so because, quote, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also warned his followers of wolves, being a threat to the church, but he added this additional bit of wisdom. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they look like sheep, they might smell like sheep, but they're really wearing a disguise. What's even more scary is that sometimes the threat isn't outside the church, but inside However, we can protect ourselves by remembering that unity requires intentionality and disunity, or disunity will be the eventuality. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that in a group this size, there are some who perhaps have had painful church experiences where disunity and division reigned. It's never comfortable when it happens. It's always painful, and it often leaves scars. Father, would you please redeem those wounds for good? Would you give wisdom and insight And Lord, would you use those painful experiences to grow those who have experienced them? Father, I also just want to pray for for our church, that you would protect our church from those who would do harm. Some don't even know they're doing it. They don't intend to. Lord, please, would you use your word and the scriptures we looked at today to help them see that they... They may be unintentionally causing division with what they say, what they do, or how they think. And Lord, if the adversary sends anyone from the outside, would you help us to be discerning? To know whether they are a sheep or a wolf. Would you help us, Lord, to set our emotions aside and to be able to put the church first and the gospel first to protect the church. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this sobering truth, the practicality of your word, and how Paul is able to, inspired by the Spirit, provide great wisdom and to remind us of how we can be unified and healthy as a church. Thank you, Lord, for that. 
It's a timeless message that we needed to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.